If you're interested in what China's doing in Africa and the Global South, you're going to want to subscribe to the China Africa Project. We've indexed every major news story going back years, and it's easily searchable by country, topic, or keyword. Plus, we're the only source for daily analysis on all of the big stories related to Chinese engagement in Africa and throughout the developing world. With a subscription, you'll enjoy full access to the site. Plus, you'll get our popular daily email newsletter that comes out every morning at 6 a.m. Washington time. Subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everyone else. To sign up, just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, when you and I started the show all the way back in 2010, I, I feel like we're dating ourselves now when we say that we're so old. From the beginning... We wanted to make the show a forum where we would be able to hear directly from both Chinese and African stakeholders about the important issues impacting this relationship. We didn't want this to be a show where we were just going to Washington and New York and London to hear from the usual suspects in think tanks, academics and whatnot. But early on, it wasn't too difficult to invite people from all sides on the show. I mean, you remember we put out invitations and they would come right back, but it has gotten a lot more difficult in the past couple of years to persuade Chinese guests in, a, in particular to appear. I keep trying every week. I mean, I'm firing off emails and direct messages and you name it to try to get Chinese academics and politicians and scholars and all these you know, different stakeholders to, to, to appear and very few actually respond. But back in March, uh, Wu Peng, who's China's top diplomat for Sub-Saharan Africa, kind of like the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs in the U.S., he retweeted a post of mine. So I thought, okay, let's see if I can use this as, as an excuse to reach out and, and say hi. So I sent him a DM, and I thanked him for retweeting my article, and I said, would you be interested in joining us on the show sometime? And much to my surprise, almost right away, he came back and he said, Sure. And after five months of back and forth, it all worked out, and we had the chance to speak with him this week. It was great because this is a guy who has a lot of experience in Africa. He's the former ambassador to Sierra Leone, he's the former ambassador to Kenya, and now he's the top guy at the foreign ministry in Beijing for Sub-Saharan Africa. So he's really a big player. And Kobus, conversations like this with people like Wu Peng are so important because we just don't hear from Chinese stakeholders like this very often in unscripted, more casual forums like this. And in my mind, that leaves really some big holes in the discourse. 
Yeah, you know, it, it, it makes it very difficult to to know what what some of these really key stakeholders are thinking and, and also how they articulate their relationship with Africa, which is very interesting always. But it's it also then, you know, kind of it, it, it makes it too easy to 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 fantasize about the nature of the relationship, either to to paint it too rosily or to paint it too dark. Um and to and particularly to leave out the complexities, you know, because in in the, in because of the very high levels of secrecy around these issues, the Chinese then become a kind of a blank screen on which anything can be projected. Um, you know, and it and it tends to trap both Western and African kind of stakeholders in this kind of hall of mirrors, you know, kind of where they're, where they're only, where they're completely surrounded by their own discourse. And China is just, is, is there, but kind of invisible. So it's, it's incredibly refreshing to then have a, a, an opportunity to speak with some of these Chinese stakeholders. Now, before we get to the interview, let me explain a few things just so everybody's clear as to how this came about. There were no preconditions set for the interview. We were free to ask any questions that we wanted, uh, they did ask us to submit some of the topics that we plan to discuss in advance just to prepare a Director General Wu, which is standard. We do that with a lot of guests, uh, but we did not provide the exact questions or the order of the questions, and nor was any topic off limits. So a really important distinction there. Uh, and you're also going to hear that we invited questions from a group of African scholars and journalists, and none of those questions were screened in advance either. So that's how this was all set up. Let's get to it. Our discussion with Wu Peng, Director General of the Department of African Affairs in the Chinese Foreign Ministry. <music> Director General Wu, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's really an honor to have the chance to speak with you. Yes, no problem at all. Thank you. So let's start our conversation with a topic that's on a lot of people's minds, the FOCAC Summit. So the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit happens every three years. It's supposed to happen this year, the rumors are that it'll happen sometime in September, but we've also heard that it might be moved back to November. We're not sure if it's going to be a virtual summit or it's going to be a hybrid summit. Could you tell us a little bit more about what's planned for FOCAC and any details that you can share with us in terms of logistics? Oh, it's a very interesting, Eric. You are very informative. Uh, about the exact date of the meeting, we are still consult with uh, African countries. Uh, I think the upcoming FOCAC meeting is a big event between China and Africa this year. Uh, as you may be aware, this FOCAC meeting will be held in Dakar, Senegal. Uh, as I said, the exact date, uh, we are not uh, set, set it. Uh, as usual, we will review the implementation of the outcomes of the FOCAC Beijing Summit 2018 and adopt a new declaration and acting plan. I think the pandemic has brought uncertainties to the upholding of such a large-scale international meeting. But anyway, both China and Africa have strong determination to make the meeting a success. The preparation work is now underway. I hope uh, we could add more impetus to the future cooperation between China and Africa. And uh, if you may, I would like to highlight uh, three views, trade, investment, and agriculture. China has been Africa's largest trade partner country for the 12th consecutive year. Of course, by the way, uh, EU, European Union, is the largest trading partner, but not a country. 
Despite the impact of the pandemic, the trade volume between China and Africa has grown by 42% year on year in the first half of this year, reaching about $117 billion U.S. dollar. This is an encouraging recovery growth. This year also, may, also marks the official launch of the Africa Continental Free Trade Area. China will continue to support the operation of the AFCFTA's secretariat and explore free trade cooperation with African countries. Uh, I would like to point out that China never pursues a trade surplus with Africa. On the contrary, we hope that China-Africa trade will be balanced and especially promote the export of agriculture, uh, I mean, African products, including agriculture products to China. Second, about uh, uh, investment. Uh, China has encouraged various types of enterprises, including SOEs, private companies, and uh, SMEs to invest more in Africa and promote new models of cooperation in this regard. Neither the uh, Nairobi Express in Kenya or the leaky deepwater port project in Nigeria are among the good examples. A few days ago, the China-Africa Business Council, a Chinese NGO, has released a report on China's investment in Africa. The report title is Market Power and the Rule of the Private Sector which means that Africa's promising future is attracting more and more Chinese investment, and we will push harder for that. My colleagues uh, have uh, sent the report to you, Eric, before it was published, right? <laughs> yep, yep. If we could ask a couple questions about the report, Kobus, why don't you uh, pick up the conversation from there? Yes, um, it's the report's really, really interesting, and, and I was surprised to see, you know, that there's that there's quite a lot of, of increase um, in in Chinese investment in Africa, even despite the, the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that Chinese companies face when they invest in Africa? Uh, actually, I was also read through the report carefully, being very inspired by the deeps and the breadth of China's investment in Africa described in the uh, report. You are talking about challenge. I think, uh, how can I say that? There are some challenge. For example, how those Chinese companies has a long-term strategy in Africa. I mean, Chinese enterprises are transferring from going to Africa to taking root in Africa. For my observation through this report, I found that the coordination among different entities are well are widely adopted. We can see Chinese company would like to work with more players enter the investment practice, no matter African enterprises, business council, or international organizations. They are all welcome to join the investment corporation to leverage respective the trend to make the investment more ordered and efficient. The second observation for me is uh, more and more large private enterprises are giving more attention to Africa. I mean, 
actually in the past, normally very small uh, sized companies or family companies are willing to go to Africa. But now I hope at least large private companies. I through I, I, I read the report, I got that out of the top 500 Chinese private enterprises, 60 has invited in Africa. More than that of South America, that is uh, 36, and Oceania, 46. And uh, those uh, big private enterprises mainly invest in Africa for building factories and establishing market and the logistic network. And uh, the other thing, I think they are facing a challenge how to transfer the field from very traditional field to new field. I mean, more focus has been given on emerging industries, such as, uh, as you may notice that, that uh, we encourage the more Chinese enterprises was uh, to work with some African partners in industries like uh, high technology, manufacturing, pharmaceutical, digital economy, or e-commerce, and the space in industry to boost industrialization process. Yeah, staying with the report very quickly, one of the other findings of the report was that 62% of all of the foreign investment from China into Africa goes to about 12 countries. And that also mirrors in many respects the trade dynamics as well, where about 70% of African exports come from about 10 countries. So there's a very unequal distribution of where trade and investment are going, mostly from resource-rich exporting countries. You mentioned, for example, that China does not like to have trade surpluses with African countries, which makes sense. But the reality is, is that the majority of African countries do have trade deficits with China. What are you doing in the foreign ministry and together with your partners in the Ministry of Commerce and other government ministries to help spread out Chinese investment and trade in Africa and to reduce some of those trade deficits, which do put a lot of pressure on some African governments? You know, Eric, we are working on it uh, with the Ministry of Commerce, uh, General uh, Customer Authority and related Chinese authorities. We are preparing some new measures to promote China-Africa uh, a trade relation, especially encourage import, import more agricultural products from Africa. But I cannot... Uh, see too much at this moment because uh, those new measures we will announce in the forthcoming FOCAC meeting. But let me uh, uh, just uh, touch upon one field, for example, agriculture. I think um, agriculture is the key of food security and foundation of the national economy and uh, uh, even social stability, right? So we are thinking about uh, how we can you know, let provide more easy uh, access uh, to Chinese market for uh, African agriculture. Actually, it's already a lot African products can enter into Chinese market now, but not enough. So what we can do uh, now is, uh, you know, put some uh, even more privileged policy or uh, measures uh, to encourage Chinese companies to import uh, more products from Africa. I can. I really cannot 
you know, say too much about that. You can wait and see till we have okay. the. Uh, Focac meeting. All right. <laughs> Wait for Focac. Okay. Nice little tease there.、Uh. It, you know, related to to trade and investment, there's also China's also a massive provider of infrastructure、um, in Africa, and、um, we've seen over the last few years that that China's been quite thoughtful about which projects it will it chooses to to finance,、um, and there's been quite significant changes in that field over the last two or three years、um, about which projects get chosen and which don't. Um, given the, the importance of infrastructure development in Africa, I, like I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about these changes and 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 what you foresee the future of of, of Chinese infrastructure provision in Africa will be. Of course, uh, uh, infrastructure cooperation is a very important and successful part of China Africa programmatic cooperation. At least for me, it's also an area. Uh, where there are many challenges and even misunderstanding. For from China's experience, infrastructure is crucial for economic development. We all know that Africa had a big gap and an urgent need for infrastructure. So China takes it as priority of the China-Africa cooperation, like no one else. Due to the COVID nineteen global economic recession, the investment and financial support for large scale infrastructure projects in Africa has became more cautious from both sides. I mean, from、uh, Chinese side or African side,、uh, this is understandable. But we are trying to find a new way to navigate the situation. We encourage Chinese companies to join the government efforts in this regard.、Uh, for example, adopt models such as BOT or PPP, considered to reduce the project size to make it more economically feasible. I want to take this opportunity、uh, to talk about、uh, a case regarding the operation of SGR in Kenya. Of course, obviously, I am of. Former Chinese ambassador to Kenya, so I personally uh, have uh, interested in that、uh, that case. I noticed、uh, an article published in Kenya Business Daily.、Uh, it asserted that、uh, every star, the operation company of the SGR, demanded billions of shillings of operating fees owned before handing over the SGR. Operation to Kenya、yes. Railways, right? That was about three hundred and fifty million dollars. Is about the amount. Yes. Yeah, I, I think your website also, uh, uh, you know, re-report、uh, this story. Correct. I think this is a misleading. Actually, the Kenya Railway has already taken over ticket ticketing, security, and the fueling functions. This is why I think the Kenya Railway made an instant. Statement to response to the article in the same newspaper, but I feel regretful that、uh, some media friends ignored the response of the Kenya Railway. Let me、uh, take this opportunity say a little bit more about SGR. In 2020, when the global business was severely hit by the pandemic, as the company estimated, I mean the company、uh, Every Star. Uh, itself, because they have handed over uh, uh, some functions uh, to uh, Kenya side, so they ju- they just can estimate、uh, the revenue. 
So the total revenue in 2020 reached about 124 million US dollar. This is not easy in the context of the pandemic. And in the first half of this year, compared with the same period of last year, the revenue of the SGR has increased by about 30%. I mean, the cargo, uh, cargo revenue. So the railway has almost overpassed the break-even point, but of course, not very much. Its current profits are not enough to cover the loans. I understand that. I know that. But at least its operation does not cause a new spending for Kenya government. And to my knowledge, the company and the Kenya Railway are in close and very professional communication on how to reduce expenditure, and they have made good progress. My point is, it's all about business and the spirit of contract. That is the pillar of a free market, right? No government could force any company into a bad deal, not to mention even a country. I wish the media could cover the China-Africa cooperation story in an objective and balanced way. Okay, let me just make sure that I understand what you're saying. So we can go back to this question of the loan. So this was a loan payment that Kenya Railways missed last year for approximately $350 million. Business Daily, they said, according to their reporting, that unless... Uh, Kenya Railways repays Afristar for this loan, then it will not complete the transition of the handover that was being done five years earlier in order to help Kenya Railways to reduce about $120 million a year in service fees that would normally have been paid. Your understanding is that that loan now has been settled and it is not an issue and the handover can continue as originally planned. Is that what you're saying? Uh, Look, Eric, uh, I cannot uh, speak on behalf of the bank of the company, but I can assure you the loan is no related to a handover issue. You know, the handover issue is only according to business contract signed by Africa Star, Afri Star and uh, Kenya uh, Railway. I think that is what I want to say. No related to the loan. No related to, you know, to real, uh, Kenya Railway now owes some uh, uh, money to Afri Star. No, no relation to that. And I fully convinced that they can through friendly and pre- uh, uh, professional negotiation to handle this handover issue. All right. <laughs> That's okay. my point. That makes sense. Okay. So one of the things that we wanted to do with our discussion today, because this is such a rare opportunity to have the chance to speak with someone like yourself, is we wanted to open up the discussion beyond just Kobus and and me to include scholars, journalists, and analysts from Africa and around the world. And since we're talking about the SGR, and because of your expertise on the SGR related to your time as ambassador in Nairobi, uh, our first question today is going to come from someone who you may be actually familiar with. His name is uh, Jude Moore. He's the former Minister of Public Works in Liberia. He's now a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development. He has a question for you, Mr. Director General, about how China is managing its loan portfolio in Kenya and the repayment of the debt for the Standard Gauge Railway. Let's take a listen to a question from Mr. Jude Moore. My question is about this, the, the conclusions African countries are supposed to draw from what is unfolding between China and, and Kenya, especially when it comes to the deferral 
of um, interest payments. China has always described its relationship with its African partners as an all-weather one, that China is an all-weather friend. Well, the economic weather isn't going too well across Africa right now because of the consequences of, of COVID-19. But we've seen Chinese policy banks refuse to accept deferral of, of interest payments. So what conclusions are African countries to draw from what is happening now between China and, and Kenya? Mr. Director General, what are the conclusions that you think, based on the repayments now that are underway from Kenya to the Chinese policy banks for the SGR loans during a very difficult time in Kenya. What are the conclusions that people should take away from that? Uh, first of all, I think uh, I can understand you ask me about the debt or the loan uh, question. But uh, I very frankly to say I'm not in the position to elaborate many details on that. But uh, I willing to respond about the debt issue in very general way. Okay, please sympathy okay. my position. Is it fair enough? That's fair. Okay, <laughs> let's go. Let's hear what you have to say. We'd like to hear that. That's very good. Yes, I think the discussion of uh, uh, African debt problem is already on the track within the framework of the G20. As an important development partner of Africa and the G20 member, China, of course, attached the great importance to the debt issue of the African countries and gives the priority to, for, so, so, for example, the ISSI of G20. Up to date, China has signed agreements and reached agreements on debt suspension with 19 African countries. With this fact that we can learn that Chinese official creditors had made great contribution to the implementation of the DSSI. Meanwhile, Chinese commercial creditors, such as the Chinese Development Bank and ICBC, are strongly encouraged to provide that relief with comparable terms on a volunteer basis and hold friendly consultation on commercial loans with relevant African countries. From what I know, that the commercial banks did a good job. For example, the CBD signed agreements with some African countries involving about 148 million US dollars. Oh, 748 uh, million US dollars, which brought considerable benefits uh, to Africa. I think you're talking about uh, Kenya's loan. I think uh, that from the second half of this year, Kenya government did not, did not raise the request to enter the third phase of the SSR. So they already pay back the loan to Chinese Extreme Bank. And uh, why they make the, this decision, I don't know. And uh, I don't uh, touch upon the details of these new you know, agreements between Extreme Bank and the Kenya side. 
debt relief in Africa, as you mentioned, was was a big topic of discussion. Um, you know, last year, um, and it continues to be a big one in 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 Africa, particularly as as African countries are trying to deal with the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of of attention paid to that last year, but it's been a long time since there's really been much new news or, or information about what's what's happening. Uh, you know, kind of with China's la- like broad scale uh, debt debt relief programs in Africa. Uh, we were wondering, you know, particularly in the run up to to the FOCAC summit, kind of where are we now in 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 debt relief in relation to debt relief and re rescheduling and re um, repackaging of of Chinese debt in Africa. Um, you know, in, as, as we're moving towards the FOCAC summit. Oh, Kobes, I think the first coming uh, in the first coming. Uh, forecast meeting that relief is uh, not uh, a very, very important uh, topic. I think the discussion of African side problem is indeed not as hot as uh, last year. As I said, I believe that maybe uh, it's already under the framework of 320. Um, but of course, there are also some uh, new developments I can share uh, with you. Uh, there is a China is willing to work closely with the international community to deal with the debt problems of, for example, Chad and other needed African countries under the common framework for diet treatments beyond the DISR. I think the common framework of G20 is a new thing for everyone. We must respect the con- consensus and follow the rules. In my opinion, to help Africa out of these difficulties, the international community need to provide that relief on the one hand and offer financial support to, to the other. China has been pushing for the general allocation of SDRs in the MF so as to help Africa address the liquidity problem and narrow the continental's financial gap for development. We support and call on allocating more quotas to Africa, supporting their economic recovery. But more importantly, it's not enough to obtain SDR quotas only. It's just a quotas. If the IMF does not change its strict terms and the very complicated procedures, it's still difficult for African countries to get the money through the, for example, MF, ECF, or EFF arrangements. I think that the MF needs some reforms so that it can provide financial assistance to Africa in a more timely manner and allocate more funds for investment expenditure rather than spending expenditure of the African countries. Has China publicly committed to devote its allocation of SDRs, which is considerable, to developing countries? I think uh, uh, allocate uh, SDR uh, quotas, uh, we will through international institution to discuss. Before reaching any agreements, we cannot announce, but we are ready to do so. Okay. 
Let's continue with our conversations. We're now going to head to Washington, D.C., to Zainab Usman, who is the director of the Africa program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington. She's got a question about climate change. We're going to turn to the environment and energy now. And she wants to know about the role of Chinese investment really dealing with this issue of climate change, which is very, very urgent in many parts of Africa. How will Chinese economic engagement in Africa respond to the imperatives of climate change? Specifically, will Chinese entities reorient their investments in African countries? For example, are we going to see more investments in clean energy industries such as solar panels, battery manufacturing and electric vehicle assembly plants in African countries such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zimbabwe and South Africa? Uh, which um, are rich in mineral resources like uh, cobalt and nickel that are essential to these industries. Uh, Will there be an increase or a decrease in investments in hydrocarbon projects such as oil and gas pipelines in oil and gas rich countries in Africa? And finally, will there be an effort to invest in um, climate resilient infrastructure uh, such as roads, ports, bridges, etc., that can withstand extreme weather events, which occur a lot more frequently in several African countries. So in short, how will Chinese economic engagement in Africa respond to the imperatives of global climate action? Thank you. Director General Wu, how will that happen? Yeah. <laughs> it's a very big question, and uh, climate change is a very hot, hot topic. Uh, uh, you know, uh, even in the world, uh, did, did, uh, China very actively involved the discussion and take actions in uh, dealing with the climate change. Of course, in Africa, we will contribute for more green energy. But before I mention that, I have to uh, make some clarification about, uh, you know, some allegations that uh, we, China, support uh, very much coal mining or coal power station uh, in Africa, uh, because that is very important. Uh, It is noticed that that, uh, China-Africa cooperation on coal coal power station was once in the spotlight. I have been following Chinese companies' uh, participation in coal power plants in Africa for some time. Here are the truths, I believe. At present, China only involved in four coal power plants under construction in Africa. They are located in South Africa, as you are there, and, and Zimbabwe. Among them, two projects, Kusili and uh, Medupi are in South Africa and fin- financed by the Chinese Development Bank, CBD. And the Chinese companies did not directly participate in the construction of uh, these two products. The other two in Zimbabwe, called Wanji uh, Power Station Expansion Project, and uh, Zimbabwe Zhongxing Electrical Energy Power Station Project. They are being constructed by Chinese company. In fact, since 2020, last year, 
China has never participated in any new coal power project in Africa. Therefore, I think it's unfair to criticize the China for damaging Africans' environment by supporting coal power projects. On the contrary, some large-scale clean energy plants has been financed or constructed by Chinese company. As the world's largest producer of solar energy products and uh, other green energy products, China formally supports the green development of Africa. Uh, also back to uh, Kenya, because I'm familiar with that. Chinese company completed East Africa's first large-scale solar panel project in 2019. The 50-megawatts uh, facility is expected to amplify Kenya's quest for energy need while creating jobs and transfer technology. I also want to emphasize that developing countries should keep eyes on their private capital, you know, which is mean resources to support the Africa core power project. In addition, for me, I think we must ask the question, it's easy to urge Africa to reduce core power projects, but the international community should do more to help Africa find alternative and effective solution to sufficient power supply. It, it, it can't be denied that Africa desperately need energy. So for the forthcoming uh, FOCAC meeting, green energy is uh, a priority uh, in the list of our uh, action plan. I uh, Same, I cannot say too much about the new, new measures, but I think even about the climate change, the next coming FOCAC meeting will have a big move in deal with the climate change between cooperation uh, of China and Africa. You know, saying on the issue of the environment, one of the, the kind of hot button issues at the moment in, in Africa-China relations is this, there's been several um, controversies around the work of, of, of specific Chinese companies um, and, and their impact on, on natural environments. So, so one that became particularly controversial is, uh, is a, uh, a fishing and fish meal factory in Sierra Leone. Um, and we know that you have you also have personal experience in Sierra Leone, and we were we wondering about about what your views are of these kind of environmental concerns, um, and and particularly what what some of the challenges are between local communities in Africa and Chinese companies in 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 making sure that that some of these projects are environmentally sustainable. Thank you, Kobas. I think you raised the question that I also very personally interested. Recently, I noticed the fish harbor uh, project in Sierra Leone is discussed in a few media. I, I used to be the Chinese ambassador to Sierra Leone. I love this uh, country very much. As to the project, uh, let me put some comments. In terms of uh, development assistance project, I think the fishery hub project is a donation from Chinese uh, government. China has a set of... Uh, Multiple procedure for decision making. The Chinese embassy and the related uh, uh, relevant ministry always uh, have full discussion with African governments before actions, I mean, Sierra Leone government. If someone says that China does not respect the people's will, 
I think I cannot agree, but I can understand what they are talking about. Uh, you know, China as a foreign government uh, uh, or our embassy as a foreign government representative, we must respect the official China. In other words, what we can and must consult with our African government. China only does what African countries want us to do, right? Because the African government is uh, elected by their people. It represents the interests of its own people. From this point, to respect the view of the request of the government is to respect the view and request of the people. This is a, a common practice for all African partners. Of course, on the other hand, I know you are talking about we leak uh, experience uh, to deal with NGOs and uh, uh, local community. I cannot deny that, but it's not necessarily. We never uh, uh, talk about with them. For me, I, I I think we also attach the importance to the voice of local people. When I was ambassador to Kenya. I had once discussed the construction of a core power station with the social groups who opposed the project, you know, face to face. I want to make it clear: China never thinks it's appropriate to give uh, lectures to our African friends. You know, this is a, a basic norm of respect, uh, even in our Chinese philosophy and uh, culture. So on the issue of the fishery hub project, the Chinese side is responsible and professional. We not just only only listen to the uh, uh, African countries. We also, uh, you know, make our own judgment based on our own experience. You know, we believe, uh, you, you know, this is a good project for them. So that we agree. I have been to Black Johnson the site of the uh, planned fishery port to visit site. I found actually no green forest. The project is estimated cost only 40 million US dollar, not a large scale, uh, large scale port. We already spend, you know, sometimes I feel very, very embarrassment. You know, three years already been passed through the discussion of the port. Maybe we even need 30 years. Uh, we, we will not be able to complete the project. Frankly speaking, in my opinion, it's a waste of development opportunity and against the view and interest of the people. As we know, to build the free free hub was at the request of Sierra Leone government, not pushed by China. If the government of Sierra Leone decides to cancel these projects, Whatever the reason is, China will respect it. In fact, we must be very responsible. I mean, China will be very responsible and accountable for the Chinese taxpayers' money, right? And never waste a penny on any project that Africa countries do not need or do not like. That's it. <laughs> yeah, but this touches on a, a big problem that seems to exist in China-Africa relations where it, this is the perception, okay? So, I, I mean, there's no way to scientifically determine if it's fact or not, but there's a perception mm. that the Chinese embassies are very good 
at building relationships with the government. Mm-hmm. But they are not as good at doing what you did. And what you did was highly exceptional by doing by meeting with decolonize no, and no. the the Lamu group. <laughs> uh, that is but that doesn't happen very often no, in no, Chinese no, embassies Harry, around Harry, Africa. I, I, I thank you and for so your the, good, good well, work. Well, no, one quick second. <laughs> I'm just gonna say is that the perception is that on the civil society side. China doesn't invest as much time and resources to build that relationship, and that's why there's a perception of mistrust or distrust and all these tensions that seem to come up through social media and NGOs and whatnot. Can you address that perception in how China deals with civil society in Africa and how China deals with governments? Although, Eric, I cannot agree for your perception, but uh, let me put it into this way. Yes, maybe... There are a lot of space we need to improve. We are learning, all right? And uh, I think we also noticed that the public opinion is very, very important for our relationship with Africa. But the problem is, you know, our embassy, sometimes they are very, uh, uh, the staff in the embassy is very, very small, especially in African countries. Uh, and a lot of things uh, we uh, have to deal with. Uh, that is not uh, an excuse, but the fact. I, but I hear and thank you so much to remind this suggestion to us. Pay attention to social media, to local community. It's a good advice. I got it. And we try to improve. <laughs> well, I, I, will, I will say one thing very quickly is that in the new... Joint, uh, I think, Cobus, what was it? The guidelines that came out from the Ministry of Environment and the Ministry of Commerce. Yes. There's some new guidelines on green development. Also, in the China-Africa Business Council uh, report, there is a lot more emphasis on local engagement, engage with local media, engage with local NGOs. That is a new form of rhetoric coming from Chinese official stakeholders that we have not seen. So I will say that I've noticed that in the past, uh, one say, one or two years. We're running out of time, so I want to make sure we, we, we get to a couple more questions. I, I do appreciate your, the, how much time you're spending with us. The next question is going to come from uh, somebody you may also know from your time in Kenya. His name is Agre Mutambo. He is a reporter for the Daily Nation newspaper in Kenya, and he has a question about China's role in the blue maritime economy. From an African perspective, of course, the biggest question over the years has always been about China and debt, but of late there has been a series of accusations that Chinese vessels are taking away uh, fish belonging to African uh, waters without following due procedure. Um, Without um, going into the specifics of whether uh, there has been exploitation, I just wanted to know what is China's proposal to improve uh, Africa's blue economy? As you may know, uh, most African countries are slowly starting to identify the marine resources um, as some of the areas that need to be explored. Okay, China, maritime, blue water, and the distant fishing issue is a big concern in many parts of <laughs> Africa. What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. I, I thank you the question from uh, uh, our Kenya friends. Uh, but for me, I really don't understand what means of blue economy. 
Is it just means fishing? Maybe that, but it's also demonstrate when we are talking about the blue economy, we often, you know, just turn it to a very conception idea. Very difficult to turn it into real action. So I think, for example, whether China、uh, promote fishery industry in Africa. Personally, I don't like it because,、uh, for、uh, from my personal experience,、uh, working experience in Africa, it caused a lot of a lot of di- dis- dispute. In fishery industry, I don't like it at all. You know, we just、uh, talk about、uh, Sierra Leone、uh, plan the fishery port. You know why Sierra Leone government want the fishery hub? Because they want you know levy more tax from fishery port, and most fishery port are actually from China. You know who against the fishery port? <laughs> Very ironically, those Chinese fishery company operating in Sierra Leone. So doesn't matter. I think the fishery industry in Africa is very very complicated. As a diplomat, I really, you know, instead of African government to make decision, you know, we can all indeed what African countries want us to do, including the. A、uh, uh, uh, marine blue economy. For example, if they think a、uh, uh, uh, ocean farm is a good idea, doesn't uh, environment uh, environment uh, uh, you know very、uh, also environment friendly project? Okay, we can cooperate. In China, we have a lot of experience of marine farming industry. But if we do that, I can tell you. It will also cost a lot of、uh, criticism from media. So I personally do not like <laughs> the so-called bring a、uh, blue economy cooperation. We must be very, very cautious. I, I, I don't say、uh, I cannot say too much、uh, on this topic. I just like to move the conversation to COVID nineteen vaccines.、Um, we've seen, you know, kind of like like obviously, there's a lot of Chinese COVID COVID nineteen vaccines are being used in Africa, but we're also seeing that there's quite large differences between between China's、uh, distribution to Africa and distribution to other parts of the global South, like Latin America, for example.、Um, and at the same time, within Africa, there's also you know many more vaccines are going to affect. To about five countries than to other countries. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit, like what what is some of the some of the kind of like factors involved in the choices of where Chinese vaccines go in Africa and how that fits into the broader South Silk Road agenda.、Uh, thank you, Kobes.、Uh, I, I think your question a little bit、uh, surprised to me. Because I'm very very busy in my daily life,、uh, daily work to deal with the COVID nineteen vaccine distribution、uh, issue, but ne- I never think about what factors influenced my decision. Okay, so I would like to、uh, put it into this way:、uh, since the beginning of this year, China began to provide、uh, vaccine assistance and expert to African countries in need. My routine work 
when nine African countries rest for vaccine assistance through official channel, I care about uh, three points. Do we get emergency use authorization? I mean, the EUA in that country. Second, do we have financial support from the Chinese side for the vaccine donation? I mean, the money, where the money from? The third <clears throat> point is, do we have enough vaccines from Chinese uh, 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 companies? To tell the truth, to tell you the truth, we were under huge pressure for providing vaccine to our foreign friends due to uh, huge domestic needs, especially early of this year. Uh, from last uh, February, we started to provide vaccine assistance to African countries. At the same time, at, at that time, I remember more than 95% of the population in China has not been vaccinated. China provides assistance to Africa in the face of our own vaccine shortage. Fortunately, with the development of vaccine production capacity, uh, the supply has been improved very, very much. Uh, in addition, the price of uh, Chinese vaccines sold to foreign countries have declined a lot, and the export volume to Africa will continue to increase, I believe. At the same time, I believe we must support Africa to enhance its own vaccine production capacity. China encourages its vaccine companies to transfer technology to African countries and has successfully kicked off its local manufacturing or cooperation with a few African countries like uh, Egypt, uh, Morocco. Of course, I try my best to develop this kind of manufacturing cooperation in sub-Saharan Africa. But frankly to say, it, it's not easy at all. We, we, we formally support the Viva of uh, intellectual property protection for vaccine. Call on the international community to promote equal vaccine distribution and oppose any kind of vaccine uh, nationalism. Let me put it in short. You know, we provide uh, vaccine to African countries under their request. You know, I, I remember there is no country rest the request to China, but we refused. No, we try our best within our capacity, capacity, you know, to provide vaccine assistance, no matter donation or sale to those African countries who really need Chinese vaccine. Okay, well, I assured your staff that I would get you out on time and I want to live up to my promise. <laughs> uh, Director General Wu Peng, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, it was great just to be able to hear your insights on some of these matters because we don't get the chance to hear from Chinese officials like yourself very often. So we really appreciate the time. No, 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 no. You, you can, you can. I, I, I think thank you so much. But you always uh, uh, let me say a few words sure. in the uh, last minute, okay? Uh, you always decide that uh, the Chinese official reluctant to communicate uh, with uh, media. I, I really, really don't think so. I would like to say some words. You know, I appreciate, uh, you know, Eric and your colleague, uh, your close attention on China-Africa cooperation and always find time 
you know, for me to read your articles and comments, listen to your pod- podcast from my very, very tight schedule. From this point, uh, actually, I think I'm a, uh, I'm a reader of uh, your report. Why do I spend time on your website? Because your objective and constructive reports and comments attract me, make me better understand China-Africa cooperation from a different you know, perspective. But to be honestly, I don't agree a lot about your view and report, but that, that doesn't matter. You know, you say some people, some Chinese officials do not like interviewed, but, you know, Chinese are actually willing to communicate with media. But due to culture shock, in particular, the language barrier, even for me, is very, very uh, difficult to speak in English. We seem not active in communicate with foreigners. Next time, if you raise the questions in Chinese, more Chinese officials will be eager to engage. However, I know your your listener is a uh, 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 native uh, uh, English native speaker. We have to speak English in your program. I think this is an exist uh, existence of language inequality. Why not raise questions in China and in Chinese? I hope that will be more and more journalists or reporters like you, Eric, who can speak Chinese and try to find out more about the real China. Well, thank you. Well, we're glad that you and, and honored that you take the time to read our, our writing every day in, in the newsletter. We, we're glad that we could have some points of disagreement and have this conversation. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> So next time we will use oh, Chinese. You speak very fluent Chinese. That is, uh, make me happy. Make me life more easy. But I will take you up on the <laughs> offer that even if we use Chinese to speak with uh, ambassadors and Chinese <laughs> officials, and if they say Chinese English, okay. Uh-huh. Um, but having this uh-huh. communication, because one of the frustrations that we have is that we will go to uh-huh. a webinar about China, Africa, and there'll be Americans, and uh-huh. there will be Africans, and there will be Europeans, and there will be no Chinese. And this discussion happens <laughs> all the time. That Chinese companies, Chinese no. scholars, and Chinese ah. officials are not there, and we want to have Chinese people there. Okay, uh, things is changing. Next time, I can help you to interview Chinese scholars, experts uh, on Chi- uh, Africa project, uh, on Africa issue. All right, we reached the deal. Wonderful. Thank we you. will take you up on that offer. Thank you again <laughs> yeah, for your time. So we really much. appreciate it. Thank you, Kobes. Okay, goodbye. Kobus, unfortunately, we only had time for about half the questions that we wanted to ask. I'm hoping that Director General Wu will come back again in the future or that he will help fulfill his promise to make other ambassadors and other Chinese stakeholders available to us because I really want to continue this conversation. I think it's so important. Uh, what were your key takeaways from the conversation? Um, there was uh, so there were so many, um, you know, so so I don't really have a, a, a kind of a, comp- a comprehensive kind of map of them in my head yet. I, I would need to kind of listen to everything again. Um, but one interesting, really interesting point for me was was his, his acknowledgement of how troubled the cooperation is in the fishing industry. Um, and I I completely agree with him. I think that that the the 
blue economy, but particularly fishing, um, may not be such a great place for, for Chinese companies to be involved in Africa. Like As he said, it's politically extremely complicated. It, it, it tends to draw one into fights with local communities. Um, it tends to have bad environmental impacts. And yeah, it was just very interesting to see that kind of that kind of acknowledgement of that that problem and also the the acknowledgement with it of how complicated the Chinese presence is in Africa. The the work of the Chinese government or the party or the you know the the, the party affiliated bodies like like state owned enterprises and so on is one thing and it's incredibly complicated and there's lots of lots of people involved there but that doesn't even then cover the entire landscape the the role of of again in this case chinese fishing companies and the weird kind of role that they play in pushing the african governments in certain directions and you know and and pulling the chinese government into that fight and so on is the complications of that just is made clear in this one little one little case and the the same the same dynamics must be happening in mining and many many other kind of fields as well so you know just kind of just seeing that kind of acknowledgement from from the chinese side of that complexity was very interesting but it's interesting that at Several points throughout the conversation, he was very clear, and he's a good diplomat this way, to say, well, this is beyond my purview. So in some ways, being able to say that about the blue maritime economy in response to Agri-Mutambo's question uh, might be safe simply because it's not in his jurisdiction to be able to manage or to have influence, if you will, on the Chinese distant fishing fleet that's committing so many of these problems in the coasts of Mozambique and Ghana and Kenya and whatnot. And I think that goes to a very important point here is that the complexity of the relationship was revealed in this conversation about how much the Ministry of Foreign Affairs can control and can influence versus other powerful stakeholders from the China Exim Bank to other policy banks, to the fishing fleets, to the state-owned enterprises. And it really is a very multi-layered you know, operation. I don't think that a lot of people on the outside necessarily have the understanding of how complicated it is, the point that you're trying to make here. And in many ways, I think Director General Wu made that point here that, well, this is what I can do, but I can't do other things. We hear that a lot in our discussions with uh, diplomats from other countries as well. Well, that's something that's you know handled by the military, or that's handled by USAID, or that's handled by FCDO or DFAT. So the Chinese are no different in that respect. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's they 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 all face a lot of complications and they face a lot of internal competition, um, and you know, kind of making that clear is is really valuable. It would be super interesting to have a, a similar kind of conversation with a Western diplomat on the same level, um, you know, and and to see to see how how many kind of similarities there are between between these kind of problems. What's the one or two questions that you didn't ask? that we didn't have time for that you would have liked to have asked. Well, in the first place, I would have like some some of we we only had a limited amount of time um, with Director General Wu, and the so so some of the questions of for some of our friends that we that we gathered questions from couldn't be included. So that that made me sad. Yeah, we had more questions than we had time for, unfortunately. So we do apologize for those who do who did submit and we weren't able to to run them. Yes, um, I was very glad for for um, Zainab's question about climate change, um, and I think that you know I would. I would probably have have drilled down even more on, on on some environmental issues, particularly to you know um, he, he pointed out the the decline. 
decline in funding to coal-powered stations, uh, like facilities in, in Africa. Um, and that is that's a, in, an important and interesting point. What I, I would probably have to like kind of try to kind of like draw out a little bit more about what what the alternative is looking like. You know, kind of whether is you know kind of who who are what are the fields that they're focusing on on post coal kind of power generation in Africa. You know, kind of how is that kind of how is that going to feature in FOCAC? Um, you know, kind of what what are what are some of the kind of calculations and and uh, you know be behind some of these decisions and how particularly how are they going to get how are they going to be financed? That's that's the biggest issue I think. So for me, and I have to kind of first state that generally speaking, senior level politicians and especially diplomats try to avoid as much specificity as as possible. That is just a universal truth. So I was glad that he came on the show. I would have liked more details on some of the issues. I would have liked more precision on some of the debt issues and some of the perceptions, the civil society topics that we talked on. That being said, I'm not really expecting that, but that's what I would have liked some more. I would have liked to hear, and this is the question that I didn't really have a chance to ask you, but I alluded to it in the questions of, about perceptions. These are these you know social videos that continually start to appear online now and are really hardening a lot of people's perceptions of the Chinese in Africa. It would be nice to, to get some insights on that. That being said, I do recognize that diplomats at that level don't always like to respond to, to granular issues like that. But that's what I would have liked. So uh, let's get some final thoughts from you before we go. Yeah, no, it was just, you know, it was just really, really interesting to speak with him. And, um, and uh, you know, I hope we'll be able to to continue doing this, you know, and, and be able to speak to other other of the stakeholders um, involved and, and get their perspectives. It's, it's, it's really, really illuminating. I don't think that there's no way of really, of replacing that, you know, kind of it's, it's, it's unique and it's, and it's an amazing, it's been an amazing opportunity. Yeah. It's a thrill for us because it validates what we've been trying to do for all these years, which is to have the kind of discussion that we really don't have as much in the media space anymore, where all sides are coming together and trying to resist some of the polarization that's out there. It's very, very difficult. We're trying very hard to do it. This is an example of it. And so we do hope that we'll be able to get more Chinese stakeholders, more African and, and more international as well, to be able to provide you a truly multifaceted perspective on some of these very complex issues. So so that's that's pretty cool. That's what we wanted to do. That's what we do every single day uh, on the website. We're writing eight to 10 to 12 articles a day covering really the the minutia, the day-to-day ins and outs. That's really the only way you're going to be able to follow how much is happening so fast everything is changing in the China-Africa space and more and more in the China Global South space. So we're talking a lot more about the Indian Ocean trade routes into Myanmar. That's going to impact trade from Africa. Also vaccines, debt. These are all transnational issues, coal that we're talking about in South America as well. So increasingly, our discussion is pulling into the global south more broadly, with Africa still at the center. If you'd like to subscribe, and we hope that you'll join our reader community, give it a try free for 30 days, but just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Uh, you can get it for $75 a year for students and teachers and $149 a year for everybody else. For those of you who are listening inside of China, the website is still available without a VPN. So uh, that makes it that much more accessible for everybody to use. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. So for Kobus Fenstaden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. 
continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com.